Welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study. I'm Jeffrey, Minister and Chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us. Now, our study has been in the book of Luke, and we are in the 18th chapter, and we're hoping to actually finish this chapter today. Now, last time we unpacked verses 15 through 23 with Jesus and the children and Jesus's exchange between him and a rich ruler. So let's continue with verse 24 with Jesus and this rich ruler. If you have your Bibles, turn to verse 24, chapter 18, and let's get into it. Now, verse 24 is going to begin. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Now let's stop there for a moment and let's go back and take a look at verse 24. Now as Jesus looked upon him, he commented on the difficulty of those who have riches entering the kingdom of God. The difficulty is in having riches without loving and trusting them. And this whole section raises disturbing questions for Christians as well as unbelievers. How can we be said truly to love our neighbors when we live in wealth and comfort when others are perishing for want of the gospel of Christ? The ruler's sorrow over the decision about his wealth recalls the far deeper sorrow rich people who have incurred Jesus, the woe will experience. And I refer back to chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus' intense focus on the man as he spoke to him about the problem of wealth limits the application of verse 24 to the kind of attitude that the ruler had. The the vivid hyperbole about the camel makes this point unforgettable. And Jesus said, as we look at verse 25, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, an explanation of the statement can be that the needle's eye was a smaller inner gate that was in the wall of the city of Jerusalem that was used for pedestrians. Now, inside the city, it has been said that there were these camel races, and many people were getting seriously hurt and even killed. So a gate was built so that men couldn't just bring their camels inside the city. And if a camel was to try and get into the city, they would have to kneel down 
and try and crawl through it. Now, this would be very difficult, but it could be possible to be done. It is not enough to explain this as meaning that a rich man cannot, by his own efforts, enter the kingdom. That is true of rich and poor alike. The meaning is that it is impossible for a man to enter the kingdom of God as a rich man as long as he makes a God of his wealth. And let's and he lets this well stand between himself and his soul's salvation. If he does that, his love is for the money. He cannot be converted. The simple fact of the matter is that not many rich people are saved, and those that are must first be broken before God. Now, as the disciples thought of all of this, taking a look at verses 26 and 27, they began to wonder who then could be saved. To them, riches had always been a sign of God's blessing. If rich Jews aren't saved, then who can be? And the Lord answered that God could do what man cannot do. In other words, God can take a greedy, grasping, ruthless materialist and remove his love for gold and substitute it for a true love for the Lord. It is a miracle of divine grace. And again, this whole section raises disturbing questions for the child of God. The servant is not above his master. The Lord Jesus abandoned his heavenly riches in order to save our guilty souls. It is not fitting for us to be rich in a world where he was poor. The value of souls, the imminence of Christ's return, the constraining love of Christ should lead us to invest every possible material asset for the work of the Lord. And in verses 28 to 30 here, if wealth is such a hindrance in respect to salvation, the situation for the rich seems hopeless. Now, Jesus's reply about God's power provides the assurance the audience needed and evokes an enthusiastic outburst from Peter, who feels that the disciples have done what the ruler did not do. And Jesus acknowledges this by assuring his disciples, who have left everything to follow him, of abundant recompense, not only in the future age, but also in the present time. When Peter reminded the Lord that the disciples had left their homes and their families to follow him, Jesus replied that such a life of sacrifice is rewarded liberally in this life and will be further rewarded in the eternal state, the eternal home that waits for us. The latter part of verse 30, and in the age to come eternal life, does not mean that eternal life is gained by forsaking all. Rather, it refers to increased capacity for enjoying the glories of heaven, plus increased rewards in the heavenly kingdom. It means the full realization of the life that had been received at the time of conversion, life in its fullness. Now, quickly, I want to take a look at this 
rich young ruler. And this story is also told in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. It's also told in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Jesus told them to give all. Jesus did not mean that everybody should give up all their money to follow him. Zacchaeus offered to give half, and Jesus was pleased with him. But this young ruler was too much in love with his riches to be of any use in the kingdom of God. And take note the wonderful promise to those who give up all to follow Jesus. A hundred times as much in this life and lie eternal in the world to come. Now, let's move on a little further with the final approach to Jerusalem. Let's go back to our scriptures and let's pick up with verse 31. And verse 31 begins, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. I'll stop there for a moment. In this prediction, as we take a look at verses 31 to 33, Jesus for the first time mentions the Gentiles as his executors. Luke has already preserved various sayings that predict or foreshadow Jesus' death. Once again, Luke picks up words that stress the fulfillment of prophecy. For the third time, the Lord took the twelve and warned them in detail what awaited him. He predicted his passion as being in fulfillment of what the prophets of the Old Testament had written. With divine foresight, Jesus calmly prophesied that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. It was more probable that he would be privately slain or stoned to death in atonement. But the prophets had foretold his betrayal, his being mocked and insulted and spit upon, and so it must be. He would be scourged and he would be killed. But the third day, Jesus would and did rise again. Now the remaining chapters unfold the drama, which Jesus so wonderfully foreknew and foretold. One, we are going to Jerusalem. Two, the Son of Man will be delivered to the Gentiles. Three, Jesus will be mocked and insulted. And four, they will kill him. Lastly, the third day, he will arise again. Now, in verse 34, amazingly enough, the disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of his words was hidden from them. That seems hard for us to understand why they were so dull in this matter. But the reason is probably this. Their minds were so filled with thoughts of a temporal deliverer who would rescue them from the yoke of Rome and set up the kingdom immediately. 
that they refuse to entertain any other program. Now, we often believe what we want to believe and resist the truth if it does not fit into our preconceived notions. Luke attributes the ignorance of the disciples, a theme that's much emphasized by Mark, to what is apparently a supernatural withholding of understanding. Now let's move on to the healing of the blind beggar. Now this incident is going to show that Jesus, who was on his way to the royal city of Jerusalem, was actually the son of David, the Messiah. It also is going to allow Luke to point again to Jesus' concern for the needy, and especially to show his healing of the blind as a messianic work. Now, in addition, this miracle is going to emphasize the importance of faith and the glory that God receives through the ministry of Jesus. So let's take a look at verse 35. Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging, and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, in verses 35 to 37, Jesus had now left Perea by crossing the Jordan. And Luke says the incident that follows happened as he was coming near Jericho. And Jesus' final approach to Jerusalem is underway. He's moving from outside Jericho to inside Jericho, and thence to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his city of destiny. Now Luke refers to the crowds here to explain how the blind beggar knew that something special was happening. The blind beggar somehow recognized Jesus as Messiah, as we're getting into verse 38, because he addressed him as the son of David. He asked the Lord to have mercy on him, and that is to restore his sight. And in spite of the attempts of some to silence the beggar that we saw in verse 39, he insistently cried out to Jesus. The people were not interested in a beggar. Jesus was. So in verses 40 and 41, Jesus stood still. Joshua once bade the sun stand still in the heavens, but here the Lord of the sun and the moon and the heavens stand still at the bidding of a blind beggar. At Jesus' command, the beggar was brought to him. Jesus asked him what he wanted, and without hesitation or generalization, the beggar replied that he wanted his sight. His prayer was short, it was specific, and it was full of faith. Jesus then granted the request, and immediately the man received his sight. But not only so, he followed the Lord 
He glorified God. And we may learn from this incident that we should dare to believe God for the impossible. Great faith greatly honors him. The description of the man's insistent calling draws attention to his faith, which was based on the Messiahship of Jesus, the son of David. So does Jesus' question in verse 41, which allows the man to voice his request. And only Luke speaks of the praise of both the man who had been blind and the people gave to God after the miracle. This was told in Matthew chapter 20 and also Mark chapter 10. Matthew says there were two blind men. Mark and Luke only mention one. Luke says Jesus was entering Jericho. Matthew and Mark say it was as he went out. Mark calls him Bartimaeus. Possibly one was healed as, Je as Jesus entered the city and possibly another one as he left. It is likely that as Jesus entered the city, they followed along. And after Jesus was finished at the house of Zacchaeus, they placed themselves by the road where they knew that he was going to be passing by. Just before he healed the blind man, Jesus had told his disciples for the fifth time that he was on the way to be crucified. But they still did not understand what he was talking about. And I want to finish this chapter up real quick here. The power of faith and prayer. Now, Jesus prayed a great deal. We know this. And he talked much about prayer. And I want to quickly share some things that Jesus said about faith as a part of the act of prayer. Number one, in Nazareth, he didn't do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Matthew chapter 13. Number two, to the disciples in the storm, in the book of Mark, and also in Luke, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? A third one I want to point out, to Jairus, just believe and she will be healed, that we see in Luke chapter 18, or chapter 8. To the woman with a bleeding disorder, your faith has healed you, the book of Mark, chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 8, in we see the centurion to Jesus, to say the word of my servant will be healed. And Jesus's response was, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, and the servant was healed. In the book of Matthew chapter nine, he, Jesus says to the blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? According to your faith, will it be done to you? To the disciples, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall do what is done to this fig tree. The book of Matthew chapter 21. To the Canaanite woman, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Again, Matthew chapter 15. To Peter, who was sinking in the water, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? The 14th chapter of Matthew. Again to the disciples, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? The book of Mark chapter 9. The disciples to Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? Referring to the demon. And Jesus' response was, because you have so little faith. Matthew chapter 17. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can sow to this mountain move from here to here and it will move. Nothing is impossible for you if you believe. You will receive what you ask for in prayer. Everything is possible for him who believes. Both in Matthew and Mark. To Martha at the grave of Lazarus. 
did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's in the book of John, chapter 11. And lastly, to the multitudes in Capernaum, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who has been sent. The book of John, chapter 6. The emphasis Jesus put on faith is simply astounding. When Jesus talked about prayer and faith, strange as some of his words may sound to us, he knew what he was talking about. He came out of the unseen world, and he was perfectly familiar with the forces and the powers that are work behind the scenes, but about which we know nothing. We ought not to be too determined to explain everything that Jesus said about prayer so as to be in it within range of our infinite understanding. It might be that if we only would apply ourselves with enough patience and persistence and perseverance to the practice of prayer, we could achieve things that we do not ordinary dream could be possible. Jesus certainly meant something by these words. He did not talk just to hear himself talk. We think that Jesus was aiming to teach some of the most fundamental lessons of human existence for all of mankind, for all generations. God holds in his hands the workings of the interrelated forces of the universe, and he is able to bring into play powers that we know nothing about to supplement and control those that we do know about. Jesus said that God may be induced to do this through our faith in him. With that, we're out of time. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us back next time as we start chapter 19. Until then, God bless you. Keep living Christian strong.